everyone, and welcome to Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Jansons, and our guest today is Alex Johnson, the creator of the Fintech Takes newsletter. Alex has been bringing his thoughtful takes and commentary on all things fintech for many years and has most recently been working at FICO, the credit scoring company, and Cornerstone Advisors. Alex publishes Fintech Takes, one of the leading newsletters in fintech, twice a week and regularly teams up with Jason Mikula and others on the monthly Fintech Recap podcast. In today's episode, we cover a whole host of topics, including the growth of the Fintech Takes newsletter, Alex's creative process and how he dives into new topics, a Fintech 2023 rapid fire, and much, much more. Hi, Alex, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from beautiful but snowy Bozeman, Montana. Well, it's amazing to have you on the podcast. And firstly, I'd love to do a quick shout out to you for answering my somewhat cheeky invite to uh, join the podcast via Twitter. Um, It's a pleasure for us to have you on the show today. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, so I appreciate the opportunity. Great. Um, so for our listeners who might be a little less familiar, can you tell us how you got into fintech? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll try to keep this brief. Um, when I was growing up uh, in Bozeman, Montana, there were two tech companies in town at the time. Uh, one of them was a CRM company that ended up getting bought by Oracle, and the other one just happened to be a fintech company. Uh, and this was uh, well before fintech was a term. Uh, the company is not super well known, but at the time they were doing a lot of uh, very interesting sort of fintech infrastructure stuff with some of the largest banks uh, in the country. And so um, I got an internship there when I was in high school. Uh, I actually worked there for 12 years all the way through school. And then after I graduated full time, um, and helped them kind of build out their marketing and business development work. So spent a lot of time just sort of figuring out how to how to write about and how to think about the, the financial services space and then increasingly the fintech space as fintech became more common. After I left um, that company, I bounced around a couple of different roles. Um, I led credit card research at Mercator Advisory Group uh, for a couple of years, which was fun because I didn't really know anything about credit cards. So it was kind of like getting a, a master's degree in payments when I did that. Um, and then spent about five years working at uh, FICO, the credit scoring company, uh, where again, did kind of marketing, business development, a little bit of uh, corporate strategy work. And, you know, again, got to get a sort of a master's degree in credit bureaus, credit scoring, lending, all of those areas. Um, and then uh, it was around that time that I, I started the newsletter, which I'm now doing full time. Amazing. So I think you probably have one of the slightly more unconventional entries into fintech among some of our guests, many of whom are coming from the worlds of banking, finance, startups, investing, and so on. So mm-hmm. in your own words, I'd kind of love to hear how you think your part in fintech has shaped your own perspective as a commentator. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, it's definitely an outside perspective, right? And so I feel like I'm Kind of constantly, and I've, I've been doing this now through the newsletter for um, coming up on four years. I've worked in financial services for you know fifteen plus years, but um, I feel like I'm still asking a lot of dumb questions about how things work, right? Like, um, like what is this VC thing, and like how does this part work? And I'm kind of coming up to speed on that, and at the same time, coming up to speed on sort of the life of an early stage startup and what that looks like, and some of the the things that go on in there. I didn't know what. Uh, 
you know, OKRs were for a really long time. Like there's just these things that you don't know from an outside perspective. Same thing with banks. Banks are these fascinating monolithic companies. And I've worked around banks for a long time and I, I feel like I know them fairly well now, but, you know, I went to a, a community banking conference earlier this year and was just dazzled by the like number of like words and acronyms that I was like, oh my God, I don't even know what this means. So I think for me, my path in fintech has been defined by sort of trying to figure it out from the outside. Um, and I think there are a lot of challenges to that. And certainly if you read my newsletter or listen to my podcast, you won't have any trouble finding the parts where it's like, ooh, he doesn't really feel like he knows what he's talking about there. He seems to have a lot of questions about this. But I also think that um, having that outside perspective can be helpful and can um, sort of make things more accessible uh, to others. I mean, I think one thing that happens in fintech a lot is we all sort of pretend like we know everything that everyone is talking about when reality is like, we each know probably one or two things really deeply and super well. And the rest of it, we're just kind of making up and kind of nodding our heads. And so I try to be open about the things that I don't know and ask dumb questions and hopefully others get uh, value out of that. It's um, something I learned actually when I was going to college and I, I went to school to become a teacher. So my background is in uh, education and, uh, you know, I student taught uh, at a local high school here and said, spent some time in the classroom with bored teenagers who look at you me like, you know, they hate me and can't wait to get away. And one thing I learned doing that is that um, there is a trick to, to getting people to understand things or to explain things. And a big part of it is being vulnerable and, you know, saying the things that you don't know or going, hey, that's a good question. I'm actually not sure. So I think that's kind of been the defining characteristic of my journey in fintech so far. And I'm sure I and many of our other listeners owe a lot of our fintech education to you. So thank you for asking the dumb questions so that we don't have to, or at least we can uh, <laughs> pass your understanding. Um, that links that links great to my next question, which is you're a proud resident of Bozeman, Montana. Uh, yeah. And I think you have been for 20 plus years from what I can tell. So that's right. how have you been able to balance keeping your distance from kind of the traditional finance and tech hubs of the US with your role as a fintech commentator and thought leader? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, as I was saying, that outside perspective is, I've kind of turned it into a strength, I think. And so, um, you know, a lot of times, like as an example, when I'm looking at a new fintech company that I've never come across before, I'll just go through their website, right? And it's kind of like, imagine a customer, but it's like the most pain in the ass customer imaginable because they read your terms and conditions, they read all of your FAQs, maybe they have sort of an inconvenient amount of knowledge about how your industry works and how your business might work. And I just sort of parse it from the outside. And, you know, I definitely get stuff wrong when I do that. But um, most of the time, I'm close to being right. And the things that I get wrong are often things where like, as an example, a fintech company won't have updated their terms of service. And so I'll get something wrong in my analysis, but it's because they didn't update their terms of service, which they probably should have done. So it's kind of that outside perspective that's useful. And I feel like, you know, to a degree, if I was closer to it, if I like, you know, all of my friends were the co-founders of these companies and I could just call them up and go, hey, you know, what's going on with this or whatever, I kind of feel like it would somewhat sort of cut short this like ability that I have to analyze things from the outside. So I actually enjoy having a healthy amount of distance. Um, I don't think doing what I do would be feasible if I hadn't, you know, started the newsletter like three months before we all had lockdowns with COVID, right? I mean, the shift to remote work and the ability to do a lot more of this stuff over Zoom and over Twitter has definitely made it much more feasible. 
uh, to not be in the Bay Area or to not be in New York. And I, I still go there quite a bit for events and for meeting with people. But uh, having that distance and being able to do a lot of things remotely uh, has ended up working out really well for me. I know Wharton Fintech was certainly a beneficiary of uh, a lot of people's calendars freeing up and people being much more willing totally. to get on Zoom. So uh, we were we were right there with you. So perfect segue into the newsletter. Um, last I checked, Fintech Takes has 30,000 plus subscribers, including your yep. parents. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about your journey from the first Fintech Takes post in July 2019 to what Fintech Takes has become today? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's evolved a lot. If you go back and you can still go back to my old Substack uh, where my old posts are and look at the ones from uh, July 2019 and September 2019, and they're different than what I do today, right? Uh, definitely a lot rougher, shorter, you know, and much more just sort of like um, it was almost kind of like the newsletter version of like quote tweeting, right? In the sense that like, there'd be a piece of news and I would add my like two second opinion on top of it. And then I, I really wouldn't like venture my opinion much more than that. And, you know, I think it probably took me a good six months, maybe kind of experimenting with the newsletter originally. And this was like in the days when no one read it. Uh, I think my parents were like the only subscribers to it. I wasn't really sharing it on LinkedIn or Twitter. And I was just trying to get sort of a feel for like, what's my voice? What do I want to say? What, what's my unique contribution to the fintech space from a, a content perspective? And, um, you know, what I figured out was that um, for me, the only things I'm really good at writing about are things that I personally am interested in. And so uh, I very quickly sort of disabused myself of the notion that, hey, fintech takes is going to be a place where we always have the hottest take or we always have the most popular post on whatever hot topic is happening right now, that just never worked for me. And I think it was because even when I would try my hardest to write about, you know, uh, whatever the hot topic was at the time, neo banking three years ago, or when buy now, pay later started exploding, buy now, pay later, whatever it was, is that um, my sort of quick uh, takes on those topics that were more sort of driven by like a desire to get clicks or desire to sort of be a part of the conversation that was happening on Twitter they they never ended up working because I don't think my heart was really in it. And I feel like one thing that, and you probably found this too in the podcast too, it's just really hard to fake enthusiasm or interest, right? And and audiences, maybe if it's even on sort of a subconscious level, can kind of tell when you're sort of phoning it in. And so what I ended up doing and kind of pivoting to with the newsletter, and I think what is kind of its defining characteristic today is... I just follow my own interests. And I'm kind of a generalist. I, I'm pretty interested in a broad range of different things within fintech, but I'll write about stuff that uh, should have like no audience for it at all, right? Like I, I did a real deep dive into the mortgage servicing space, which is horrible and niche. And there's only like 15 people who even understand how it works. And like, it's just awful. There's no reason anyone should be interested in it. But I sort of became fascinated with it as a consumer and like the experience is kind of terrible and like why is paying my mortgage so painful? This is ridiculous. And I just sort of kept pulling on that thread and pulling on that thread and pulling on that thread. And I ended up writing a couple pieces now about the mortgage servicing space and getting to sort of dig into that space. I got to know pretty much all the fintech founders who are building in the mortgage servicing space. There's not many. We have like a little club where we all get together and talk about how terrible our lives are. But like, it's fun to like get to meet those other people and you know, it, it was it was a really good piece and it actually performed really well. And so what I've learned is to just sort of follow my curiosity wherever it may go. Sometimes it hits, sometimes it doesn't. But usually at a minimum, I walk away having learned something. And if no one reads it, no one cares, but I still feel like I learned something, it was a good time. 
The enthusiasm is definitely contagious in, in many of your articles, I must say. Good. So I have a question here. Do you think you're still writing fintech takes as a coping mechanism or has it morphed into something more now that you've been publishing for, I don't know, coming on five years? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I um, I definitely uh, started the newsletter as a coping mechanism. As I said, I was trying to um, kind of keep up with everything that was happening in fintech and it was just moving so fast that I was like, okay, if I don't force myself to have an opinion about all of this news and new announcements and new VC rounds that are being raised and uh, new product launches and partnerships, like if I don't force myself to have an opinion, I, I won't be able to keep up with this. So that was my original thought process for the newsletter. Um, it has definitely evolved. Um, I guess I've learned how to cope with fintech just sort of naturally. It's kind of in my DNA and the rhythm of my week is just sort of keeping up with everything. So that's less challenging for me. And now I think my my greater challenge is to try, kind of like a VC would, I suppose, sort of continually formulate and then break down and then build new hypotheses for how the market is evolving, right? Like I'm always trying to sort of at a 30,000 foot level understand, you know, well, what's a good thesis for what's happening over in this space? Or how is this market evolving? Or like, what are the dynamics here? And going back and going, oh, you know, I thought this six months ago, but I think I was wrong. And here's why. And just constantly being kind of introspective and almost academic about like a view into the fintech space and how it's evolving. And that's where I think most of my sort of mental energy these days goes and, and what the purpose of the newsletter for me is. Your list of fintech resources found on the about page of fintech takes um, mm -hmm. might be the definitive list of what newsletters and personalities to follow in fintech. I've referred to it a lot of times myself. Mm -hmm. um, who have you been following recently or talking to that we might not have heard of yet? Yeah, great, great question. There's so many great voices to shout out uh, in the fintech space. I mean, one of the things that's amazing to me is when I started the newsletter, it was me and three or four other people who started to kind of substack fintech newsletters at roughly that time. And since then, it's just exploded in terms of people who are creating great content in fintech. So it's it's amazing. I'm always uncovering new folks. Couple people to shout out. Um, first one is my my teammate at Workweek. Uh, who also writes a fintech newsletter, Nicole Casperson, and uh, her newsletter and podcast is Fintech is Femme. So if you haven't listened to that or, or read her newsletter, uh, you should definitely do that. She's she's great and talks about sort of the uh, diversity and inclusion angles to fintech that are just so incredibly important. So I think she's fantastic. Another one is uh, a guy named uh, Francisco Javier Arqueo, um, and he's a, an engineer at a firm. He also writes a newsletter called Chaos Engineering, where he kind of digs into the sort of engineering and data science aspects of fintech. And I, I, I learned a ton reading that. I actually um, been digging into generative AI lately, and I've learned just a ton kind of following Francisco and learning from him. Uh, a woman named uh, Tripti uh, Natu is uh, another one who's writing really good content. She has a Substack and is kind of writing a very sort of focused thing on like you're building in fintech. Here are some things I wish I'd known or things I'd followed. So she's great. And then one last one is um, Tanvi Lal, uh, and she's a, a consultant actually at uh, Deloitte, but writes a really great newsletter on fintech and kind of giving her perspective on that as well. So those are a few new voices I would definitely recommend following. Amazing. We'll have to look them up right after this. <laughs> um, so before I get into kind of rapid fire on your own fintech takes now that we're in 2023, mm -hmm. uh, I really want to ask you a little bit about your creative process. 
I'd love to hear a bit about kind of between fintech takes and the fintech recap podcast. Not to mention your very very active Twitter. Yeah, um, you're pumping a lot of content out, the kind of dozens of pieces of pretty substantial fintech content. Could you give me an idea of what a typical day or week looks like for you? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Um, I mean, I think to give some context, when I started the newsletter, it was once every other week, right? And so I had a different full-time job at the time, so I couldn't devote a ton of extra time to it. Once every other week, little side project. And it came out on Mondays. And I remember even at the time, a lot of late Sunday nights, like banging my head against the table, just going like, what am I going to write about? Like, think, think, you know? And so that was... um a challenge then. And, uh, you know, like anything, it's like exercising or flossing or whatever, like you can turn content creation into a habit. And uh, the more you do it consistently, the the easier that part becomes. But to your point, I've definitely ramped it up a lot. Uh, today, I do a newsletter on Mondays. Uh, so one just came out today. Uh, I do a, a podcast every week that comes out on Wednesday. Uh, and then I do a deep dive sort of essay uh, on Fridays, uh, not to mention way too much time spent on Twitter. So it does get busy. And, you know, I think for me, uh, you know, kind of week to week, the way that I try to sort of split up my, my time is, uh, into writing buckets and then like sort of absorption buckets, if that makes sense. So I, I spend a lot of my time, uh, over the weekends at nights, and then really a lot like on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, just kind of catching up on fintech news. And so I I joke that like as much as I create content, I think I subscribe and read to more fintech content than like anyone. Like I, I am on so many newsletter subscriber lists. I have a ton of podcasts queued up, including this one. Uh, and um, I just try to absorb as much fintech content as possible because for me, a big part of my process is like, the more sort of nodes I can connect in my brain between like, oh, that happened. And oh, oh, this is interesting. Maybe there's a connection between that. Like the more raw information I feed in, the more of those connections and trends and sort of observations kind of just come out. It's like a popcorn machine, right? Like put enough kernels and the popcorn just comes out over time. So that's a big, big part of the process. And I, I try to be very intentional about carving out significant chunks of time to do that, right? I mean, some stuff on Twitter you can just sort of catch as it goes by and it's relatively easy, but like podcasts are hard, right? I mean, like, you know, you can't, you have to be sort of listening to a podcast if you want to take anything away from it. And so I try to build in time for, you know, working out, but also listening to a podcast, taking my dog, but also listening to a podcast. So just, I have big chunks of my schedule where I'm like, I'm just going to do this and intentionally not answer emails, not do anything else. So that's a big part of it. And then the other part of it is, um, the writing. And particularly for the the Friday deep dive essays that I do, those ones just require a lot of like time and like no distractions. And so once I've sort of spent some time thinking about what I'm going to write a topic about and kind of pulling in the different pieces and just sort of turning it over in my brain for a while, I'll sit down with like a block of time blocked on my calendar and just force myself to put something down on paper. And, uh, you know, normally I hate the first five versions of it. Uh, but there are little pieces that I like and that I'll keep and I'll move around. You know, I'll sort of toggle between like internet off mode where I'm just trying to write and focus and then sort of internet on mode where I identify like, oh, I need a quote for this and I need a, a stat over here and a graphic for this. And I think someone on Twitter mentioned this other thing. So I'll go dig that up. So I sort of toggle between like research mode and writing mode and I try to keep those somewhat separate. But 
that's what I spend a lot of the later part of my week doing. So like Wednesdays and Thursdays are a lot of just like kind of deep, deeper focus work. And, um, you know, again, even though I'm doing this full time, there's still a lot of late nights and I still find myself up late Thursday night trying to go like, you know, work brain, like focus, you know? And so there's a bit of that, but, um, it, over time it turns into a bit more of a rhythm and a habit on a weekly basis. And I feel like I'm just starting to kind of hit a good stride there. Well, you're giving, giving some hope to the rest of us if, uh, if you're hitting your stride now. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a while. It takes a while. So more so than just content creation, kind of as you mentioned, you've become, if not an expert in all aspects of fintech, extremely informed across a lot of verticals. So what is your process for learning or maybe, you know, doing a Friday deep dive on sure. a new vertical look like? Yeah, good question. You know, it's basically just starts with asking dumb questions. So I think you'll probably have noticed if you follow me on Twitter, a lot of times I raise my hand and go, hey, fintech community, dumb question. What do you think about X? Or are there any companies doing Y? And I'll just sort of toss out like a question. And one of the things that's amazing about the fintech community, and this is true on LinkedIn, this is true on Twitter, this is true on a lot of the like Slack groups that are out there, is... Um, you can just raise your hand and ask dumb questions and you don't get scoffed at. People don't laugh. They, they connect you with people. They point you towards resources. They help, you know, and uh, that's amazing. I wouldn't be able to do what I do without that because I am not an expert in almost any areas within fintech. I'm a sort of dangerously informed amateur on pretty much everything. And uh, so when I'm trying to come up to speed in a new area, I'll ask for help. I'll ask for companies to look at. I'll ask for resources has anyone else written about this before um you know and then the other thing for me that's kind of a part of the process and this is a thing i learned back when i was doing credit card research at mercator advisory group and being asked to write about these topics where they're like hey you know write about emv and chip card adoption and i'm like okay what is emv what are chip cards like i don't know anything about this like how do i do this the trick for me was when i realized that in all of these areas there are these things that don't make sense and um, you sort of learn to recognize them over time. And a lot of times, the thing that's kind of scary about it is you, you find these things that don't make sense to you. And your assumption is, well, this doesn't make sense to me because I don't know anything about this space. And I'm sure that like someone who's worked in payments for a long time totally understands this and gets this. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's just something you're not seeing or that you don't know, or you don't have a foundation of knowledge to know that question and know the answer to it. However, there are a surprising number of times, even when you're still sort of an amateur, you're still early in your career and you're coming up, where you find something that doesn't make sense to you. And it actually turns out that the reason it doesn't make sense to you is it doesn't make sense at all. Like there, there's there's no reason why it should work that way. And what happens, and this is the thing I sort of had a like a light bulb moment on is experts in the space, people who've been in the space for a long time, they've learned to ignore that thing. They've learned to look past that thing. They don't even see that thing anymore. And so a lot of times what happens is you'll find this thing that doesn't make sense and you have to almost trust your instincts about it. And you can ask other people for their opinions and go, hey, like, so this is kind of what I'm wondering about. Can you explain this to me? But in that moment, you have to remember they might not know the answer to it either. And they probably don't want to sound dumb. And so they're not going to go, yeah, I don't know either. This is really weird. Like they've probably learned to rationalize it and sort of talk around it. But you have to listen to how they actually answer the question and go, oh, so you don't know either, do you? You know, and you, you don't have to say that to them, but like 
you can realize like you don't actually know and maybe no one knows and maybe there is no good reason because sometimes in this industry stuff just evolves randomly like why is it the way that it is why when a new bank is getting a um you know payment processing account at the federal reserve why do they have to go to the american bankers association to get that routing number well it just turns out the reason for that is that the american bankers association is 150 years old and has been around forever and they were the ones who issued these a long time ago so that's why we do it that way there's no good reason it works that way and a lot of things in financial services and fintech are like that and so i think for me the superpower in digging into one of these areas is to do a balance of doing research talking to people who know what they're talking about and figuring out ways to sort of absorb their knowledge and kind of speed read everything that you know about this space and come up to speed on it but then also not taking people's words for it and trying to find those things that don't make sense cuz oftentimes that's the core interesting idea that I end up writing about is the thing that doesn't make sense that no one's really fully sort of digested or or pulled apart and I can take that opportunity to do that the whole time you've been describing this uh you reminded me of a tweet from I think early 2022 from you which was yeah what is FTX doing differently they seem to be buying up a ton of people and it just That was an amazing example, right? So that was like, I'm a crypto novice. I don't know anything about crypto. I'm still very much like an amateur coming up to speed on all of this. But at the time, uh, this was, it was, must've been like early summer, I think it was. So it was like August maybe of last year. And I was like, because this FTX was bailing everyone out. And they were just like, they were like the JP Morgan of, um, you know, the, the crypto ecosystem. And I was just like, how do they have so much money to do all of this like what do they do differently and of course i got lots of very reasonable answers about like well they don't have a lot of employees so they're more profitable and they have alameda and it's this hedge fund that can generate revenue and then the ftx and it turns out some of those things were kind of true but mostly it was they were stealing people's money and so like it's a really good example of you know trust your instincts i didn't trust my instincts enough if i had more i would have like dug into that even more and maybe i would have been a part of breaking that story i was just like oh okay but like you have to trust your instincts with that stuff because almost always the thing is actually not something that makes sense. And there's some really interesting truth there that you should keep digging at. That brings us perfectly on. I know you're not an expert in any topic, but you are a dangerous amateur. So (laughs) uh, I would love to do some kind of 2023 in FinTech rapid fire with you just on a couple of topics. Yeah. Um, So starting with kind of the interest rate environment, obviously 2023 has seen a much higher interest rate environment than we've probably seen for the vast majority of fintech's boom in the last decade. So yep. how do you think this helps and hinders both you know, today's fintech incumbents, the stripes of the world, and emerging fintech players? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. It's the one I kind of constantly think about and, and circle back to. Um, I think there's sort of two levels to this, right? So one is that um, the interest rate environment and the changes we've seen have rippled through the funding ecosystem, right? And I think anyone who's in fintech knows that. And so because uh, LPs have other places to put their money, because we've sort of cooled on sort of the idea that, oh, we're a tech company, we're not a bank, like that's that, that idea is dead. And the multiples that you're getting for funding rounds now sort of reflect that more sober idea, which I think we always should have had. So on the one level, I think that, you know, any company, any mature fintech company that was raising at these really high multiples. And you know, we saw a ton of these, like Series C, Series D, $100 million, $150 million rounds that were valuing these companies uh, you know, as unicorns or even decacorns. 
those are just really hard valuations to live up to, right? And like Stripe is a perfect example. They are raising a huge amount of capital to pay their tax bills, right? Based on the valuation that they had, they're actually raising more money now than they've raised in their entire history solely for the purposes of paying tax bills in relation to the valuations that they had before. So like they they really have had a hangover they've had to deal with and that's been very painful. And Stripe is obviously a great business and is in a strong position, but think about that problem multiplied by all of the other later stage fintech companies that might not be in quite as strong a position. So I think at a broad level, that's been definitely one area of impact. The more substantial area, though, and this affects companies that are building now, even early stage companies, is a lot of business models just don't work in a high interest rate environment, right? And this is why when fintech companies look at banking and they go, hey, um, I wonder why banks don't do this, or I wonder why banks don't do this, or I wonder why banks don't do this. A lot of times it's kind of the same way as like, imagine a, a person moves to a new town and they look across the town and they're like, ooh, that looks like a really great spot to build a house. Why are there no houses down there? I'm going to buy that real estate and build a house down there. And it turns out that the reason is that's a 50-year floodplain. And um, anyone who built a house there is only going to have it for you know 50 years or probably less before it gets washed away. Like There's a good institutional reason why we don't build houses down there. And it's the same thing in financial services. Uh, banks have business models that were built to be resilient across different credit cycles, different rate environments and different economic environments, right? And a lot of fintech, not all, but a lot of fintech was being built in these like floodplains where it's like, oh yeah, you can build down there right now. But when the interest rate environment changes, like take, you know, fintech lenders as an example, when your cost of capital goes up and suddenly you can't afford to profitably get capital to run your business. Oh, and by the way, you also don't charge interest on any of the loans that you're giving out. And so you can't make money at stasis. Like if you turn off your origination engine, you just die because that's the only way you're generating revenue. It's not that you can't survive. And I do think there are buy now, pay later companies and small business lenders and others who have built good businesses and will be able to sort of get through this environment. But it's not easy, right? I mean, a firm just had one of the worst quarters ever and have really had to make some very tough decisions. And I have a great deal of respect for a firm. I think they run a great business. I think they're really smart about underwriting. But uh, managing cost of capital and managing changes in your pricing as interest rates go up, it's really tricky, right? And um, banks know these things very well and are used to them. Fintech companies aren't. And so I think we're going to see a lot of business models that either don't work or that are severely challenged by this rising rate environment. And once again, you've made a perfect segue. So very recently, you posted a great clip of two ice climbers stuck between a pretty slippery slope on an iceberg in the Arctic Ocean. So mm -hmm. why do you think this is such a great representation of buy now, pay later providers in this current interest rate environment? Yeah, I sort of starkly tweeted this like science video that was of these like researchers and their they're climbing up the side of this iceberg that's in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. And the iceberg is small by iceberg standards, but it's basically like the size of a small house, you know, and uh, they're climbing up the side of it. And then they start to kind of realize that it's tipping. And then they try to climb up more frantically to get to the top. But the iceberg basically tips over on them and flips over. And they, they get pretty brutally like dumped into the Arctic Ocean as a, as a result of that. And I don't know. I mean, for me, that was a pretty apt visual analogy for what buy now, pay later companies generally are going through right now, which is that we're in this interest rate environment. And the thing that's tricky about it is, and just like the, the uh, researchers who are standing on that iceberg, it's really hard to tell when the moment has flipped and you need to get off of there, right? And so like, 
everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. And then, oh my God, everything is not fine. We're about to get dumped in the water. And in the case of buy now, pay later, the moment that that happens is uh, when the interest rates get away from you in relation to the pricing that you can charge, right? And if you think about buy now, pay later companies, the thing that's challenging about them relative to like a credit card is if you offer a credit card, you can just raise your interest rates uh, in compliance with the CARD Act and other regulations, but you can just raise your interest rates as the interest rates go up. And so you can keep them pegged to the interest rate and keep your margin roughly where you need it to be. Uh, buy now, pay later companies don't work that way because all of their pricing, for the most part, is negotiated through merchant partnerships, right? And so as the interest rates are going up, you have to go to each of those merchants and go, hey, we need to adjust this, we need to do this, and we need to change that. And like, you can't do that overnight, right? And so I feel like that's the getting stuck on the iceberg a minute too late part of the buy now, pay later experience is interest rates are going up. There are ways to deal with that. There are ways to deal with cost of capital going up, but you have to get to those things early enough. And it's it's hard to recognize that moment. And, and they were too late in this particular case. And now I'll segue us, but still maintaining kind of the macro environment lens. Yeah. Um, how do you think it's going to affect the obviously blossoming uh, banking as a service sector? Yeah, uh, I mean, the banking as a service sector is going to change, right? And um, the reason for that is I've compared it a lot to like a supply and demand question fundamentally, right? So on the demand side, you have fintech companies that need a bank charter uh, to operate and uh, non-bank companies, brands that are interested in embedded finance. And that's sort of collectively the demand side of the equation. And then on the supply side, you have all of the banks that are participating in banking as a service. And originally there were like two or three. Now there's like 30 to 60. Uh, probably we're going to get up to like 100, 150 maybe. And so the question is just how does that supply and demand balance itself out over time? And I see both sides being challenged, right? So on the supply side, uh, regulators have basically come in and said, you know, we're not wild about the way that most banks do banking as a service. You're taking too much risk. You're signing up fintech partners that are risky in various ways. They want to do things like have anonymous debit cards, which is like a crazy concept. And like, did no one at your bank look at this anonymous debit card and the marketing language around it before it was launched? If not, why not? And so there's just all of these sort of regulation, uh, regulatory concerns, uh, concerns about sort of controls over the risks that are being taken by these fintech partners. And that's just going to clamp down on the supply side. And so not that there won't be any banks offering it, but we've seen a lot of banks pull back on fintech partnerships. We've seen some be sort of enter into consent agreements with the OCC or other regulators to uh, put new programs in place and to sort of be more careful in the way they're doing this. And I I suspect we're going to see a lot more of that because regulators don't move fast, but when they do, the hammer really comes down. So I think that's the supply side. And then on the demand side, you know, the reason that banks wanted to get into banking as a service was there were all of these neobanks that were popping up and they all needed a bank charter. And there seemed to be just an endless demand for banking as a service coming from all of these fintech companies. Well, as we just talked about, as the fintech VC uh, spigot sort of gets turned off a bit or the, the money sort of slows down, the demand for banking as a service slows down as well, right? There are just less fintech companies that need bank charters and bank partners than there was in 2020, 2021. And so the pipeline is uh, less. The competition for good fintech partners that you actually want to be the banking as a service provider are going up. And so I think we're going to see a much more constrained, much more competitive banking as a service environment than we saw over the last uh, couple of years. And so in your long-form article about banking as a service, you kind of described the AWS versus the Hinge playbook decision. So 
based on what we just talked about now, which of those do you think is going to be better positioned kind of moving forward? Yeah, so um, the question really is the companies that sit in the middle that sort of are market makers for banking as a service, right? So this is Unit and Bond and Sinterra and Treasury Prime and Synapse and Stripe does a little bit of this, all of these kind of companies, right? They basically exist to sort of match up bank partners that want to work with fintech companies with fintech companies or non-finance brands that want to uh, launch financial services products. And they sort of make a market. They provide some of the sort of infrastructure to make it easier to integrate between those two. Sometimes they'll take on more sort of compliance work so that the companies don't have to do as much of that themselves. In that universe of banking as a service platforms, there are sort of two models that I've identified. As you said, one is the, the AWS model. And so this is basically, we're going to provide the infrastructure we are going to abstract away all the complexity. You don't need to know anything about how any of this works. You can just sign up as either a bank and you don't have to worry about talking to the fintech companies, working with them, managing their compliance. Like We'll do all of that. And on the fintech side, or maybe more appropriately on the embedded brand side, they can go, hey, I want to have a credit card or I want to have a deposit account or I want to offer this loan. And the banking as a service platform that's using this AWS model go, great, we can abstract away all the complexity. We have all of these sort of easy developer tools to just you know plug us into where you want. You'll never have to talk to your bank. Don't worry about it. It's going to be great. That's the AWS model. The Hinge model is uh, named after the Hinge um, uh, dating app, right? Which is... Um, they market it as the, the app that's designed to be deleted. So their whole model is like, we want to help you find a lasting connection. And we view our success as you eventually deleting this app off of your phone because you don't need to date anymore because you found your forever partner. Great. In banking as a service, what that looks like is we're going to match you up and really be more of a matchmaking service between banks and the companies that want to offer banking products. So we're not going to get in between you. We're not going to abstract anything away. We're going to we're going to match you guys up. We're going to have you have a direct connection between the two of you. We're going to try to foster like good interactions so like you know what the other party is expecting, but like for the most part we're just going to get out of the way and let you do your thing. That is a very very different model because it does sort of come with that expiration date, right? Eventually, you might imagine that if they're matched up and I've found my forever bank that I want to partner with, well, maybe we don't need you. Maybe we do end up deleting you. So that model has sort of a uh, shelf life to it. But I also think the virtue of that model is that it's much more compatible with the regulation that we're going to see in this environment, right? Like the OCC is not wild about the idea that if you're a bank and you're doing banking as a service, you're what outsourcing all of your compliance and program management work to your banking as a service partner who we don't know and we don't regulate like that's not a good answer for your examiner right and so i think that aws model while it's attractive on the surface is really kind of challenged by that sort of regulation and the regulatory concern that's happening there um the other question is which of those models will have more demand ultimately right so the the hinge model is we're going to hook up like neo banks or other fintech companies with bank partners and have that very direct connection that works great for fintech companies but as we've said there's not a lot of neo banks that are coming into the market there's not a lot of new neo banks or consumer facing fintech companies that are being created so what's the sort of demand side look like there for um you know the aws model where you're abstracting away all the complexity that model works really well for embedded finance and like brands that really just don't want to concern themselves with talking to banks at all. That's fine, except what if embedded finance doesn't take off quite the way that uh, 
Bain Capital Ventures and other VCs in this space are sort of hoping that it does. Like, what if it hits some rough patches? What if there's just less demand ultimately for embedding financial services? Then that AWS model is kind of challenged. So I think there are there's no real good answer on which one's going to win yet. But hopefully that gives you a little flavor for like the question and at least how I'm looking at it. Good Socratic dialogue there. We're uh, we're learning along the way. <laughs> so on the topic of compliance and kind of leading me to the next topic, which I'd love to talk about, which is fintech and frauds. Yep. So Joe Robinson, the CEO of Hummingbird, um, had the pleasure of talking to you this year, said mm-hmm. the only people better than VCs but finding early stage fintechs are criminals. Um, <laughs> so I'd love to ask how much do you agree with that statement? And what do you think fintechs can do to stay on top of kind of the potential for fraud in the space? Yeah, uh, Joe's great. And I'm jealous of that line because I totally agree. Uh, I think that that is exactly right. And, you know, it's something that fintech companies, I think, um, over the last couple of years were a a little naive about, right? And so again, kind of that whole like, don't build in a floodplain thing, like banks that have been around for a while know, fraudsters just find anyone who's giving out money. And if there's any weak spots at all, they pick at it and they find it really, really fast. So banks know that. I think fintech companies, you're building from more of a tech perspective. You almost have this like, hey, we found product market fit. Like, look at look at all these signups. Look at all this great activity that's happening. Like, you're trained to think in terms of like users and product market fit and early traction with like, you know, your MVP product that you're rolling out. In financial services, MVP products are really just uh, products that are going to get picked on by fraudsters. And so that I think is part of the sort of maturation of fintech is realizing that if you're offering access really to any type of financial services product, lending is particularly bad this way, but like bank accounts, anything, you are going to get hit with fraud attacks immediately. And you should expect that. Day one, you need to have a plan and be prepared for that. So I think that's just a sort of natural maturing of the fintech ecosystem that has happened. And there are great companies like you know, Sardine and Alloy and others that are um, doing a really good job of helping to educate new fintech founders around what to expect when they turn the lights on on day one. So that's part of it. The other part, though, is a little more malicious uh, in the sense that um, I also think over the last couple of years, fintech companies have been sort of willfully blind about the problems with fraud. And I can understand the reason for that, right? As we were talking about money was just pouring into fintech over the last couple of years. And I think one of the defining characteristics of that time was VCs telling early stage fintech companies, your job is to grow. We just care about growth. Just get more users. Just grow, 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 grow. And so if you're trying to grow, and that's the only metric that you're measured on, you're not measured on profitability, you're not measured on your loss rates, you're not measured on anything else, and you're not really being carefully overseen from a regulatory perspective, Fraud's great. Why is fraud bad? Fraud's fine. Like we don't care about profitability. Fraudsters are also new users. We can count them in our new metrics where we're signing people up. And so fintech tolerated a great deal of fraud. I in a newsletter that I wrote a while ago compared it to the steroid era in baseball, right? Like, wow, you know, they're hitting so many home runs. This is amazing. And like the incentives are all about like, you know, make the game interesting, bring new fans to the game. Everyone loves the home run chase. And it wasn't until Barry Bonds in like 2004 was so unignorably amazing at baseball. Like people were walking him with the bases loaded and like intentionally losing the game by, by, by walking him in exchange for not letting him get a home run. Because if you threw to Barry Bonds over the plate, he's going to hit a home run. Like it got to that point before we were like, okay, maybe this is a little weird. Like we should look into this. Fintech had the same thing, right? It's gotten to a point where over the last couple of years, we were signing up a ton of customers that we knew were not good customers. They were either 
criminals who were actually committing fraud, or in a more sort of pernicious case, they were customers who were committing first party fraud, right? And if you go and you look at like YouTube or Reddit or TikTok and you Google things like, you search for things like, um, you know, how to how to get the maximum bonus from Chime or, you know, tips for getting more money out of your, um, you know, stimulus checks or whatever, like there is a vast uh, sort of gray web of information about basically how to exploit financial incentives offered by all of these fintech companies. And all of these fintech companies knew this was happening, but because their incentive was growth, they tolerated a lot of that. And so I think one of the, the hangovers that we're going to have as an industry is trying to retrain our customers, legitimate customers, not criminals, but legitimate customers that you can't you can't move money out of this account into this account and like basically double count your ACH payments and then uh, charge those back uh, using the the ACH return rules. Like you can't do stuff like that. You're committing a crime. And I know it doesn't feel like that. And I know we were sort of tolerating that behavior, but we're not going to tolerate that behavior anymore. And so I think that we're going to see, you know, for example, um, Sardine is getting ready to launch a consortium where we're going to share fraud data across banks, crypto companies, uh, fintech companies, and a large part of it is going to be identifying this sort of bad behavior and trying to sort of push it out of the industry. That's going to be a big change for the industry because we just have not um, done a very good job over that over the last five years or so. Got a shout out, Sardine, with our important fintech alum, Marty. So, yeah. Um, so moving on to another topic I'd, I'd love to get into. So mm-hmm. in October 2022, you posted a great long-form article with a ton of primary research about difficulty of raising VC funding for both female founders, founders of color, mm-hmm. and painfully aware that we're two white men on a podcast talking about yep. diversity. But yep. do you have any updates to your advice in kind of that long-form article? Yeah, so that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked about this. Um, most important piece I've ever written by far. Uh, and it basically points out that uh, the reality of the situation is if you're a person of color or you're a woman and you're raising uh, funds to uh, fund an early stage fintech company, you basically have no chance in hell of raising any money. And particularly if you're a woman of color, like just forget about it, right? I mean, like the the stats are so laughably bad, there's just no chance you're going to be able to raise money. And, you know, obviously there are success stories. There are lots of great diverse founders out there who persisted through this. And so what I wanted to write about in this piece was what was their experience like? And to your point, like I'm a white guy. I've never had any problems with any of this stuff. The industry has been totally accessible to me. And I was painfully aware of that. And so I wanted it to solely be reporting on the experiences of those people who've not had that experience and who've been more challenged in raising funds and getting access to these networks that are so valuable within FinTech. And they shared their experiences with me. I definitely encourage everyone to go back and read that article. It's still pinned at the top of my Twitter account if that's the easiest place to find it. And um, the the point of the article was to basically ask, you know, VCs are always saying, you know, let me know what I can do to be helpful. Okay, well, we will let you know what can we what can you do to actually be helpful for um, founders of color and female founders when trying to sort of break past this barrier and actually get funding. And there were a couple things that came out of that that I thought were really interesting. Two that I would focus on. One is that. Um, there is a great deal of what I would sort of classify as like fake help within the the fintech and VC ecosystem. And so this looks like uh, someone saying, well, I'm not going to write you a check, 
but I'm happy to be like an advisor or mentor for your company. And if you think about that from the advisor or mentor's perspective, uh, you can understand the attractiveness of it, right? Like, um, yeah, I'll spend a half hour every month sitting up in my chair and dispensing wisdom down to you and you can be grateful and I can feel good about having helped and like, we all win. Except when you talk to uh, women or people of color who've had been on the other end of that experience, it's not helpful. It's not helpful at all. They're way, way, way too overburdened with people who want to be advisors. What they don't have are people who are actually willing to take a risk to help them, right? And the risk can be any number of things, right? The risk can be monetary. So you can be an angel investor personally. And I know a lot of VCs, by the way, who will do angel investing on the side as a way to put some money into these companies, even if it's not a good fit for their fund or they have other requirements where it doesn't make sense. Like, Put your own money at stake. I mean, if you're, you know, a partner at a VC firm, you probably have enough money where you can afford to write some small angel checks to these companies. Just a little bit of money and your name can really help these companies raise more and bigger rounds in the future. Um, another one that comes up is a lot of times uh, when you're doing advising work, you're sort of happy to talk, but you're not happy to like risk your reputation. And that's also bullshit, right? And so like you should be willing to go to all of the people you know in the ecosystem and you're well connected if you do like VC in this space for a long time, go introduce this person, take them around to all of those other people. If it's not a fit for your fun for whatever reason, help them find a good place where it is a fit and put your name on the line to help them. And then, you know, I think the other thing we should be trying to insist upon is, and I think LPs in these funds are doing a better job of caring about this, you know, there should be a certain portion of your fund that gets deployed to female founders and founders of color. And that should just be a marker that we put down as an industry and try to sort of advance the ball there. So I think all of those things are things where you can actually take more of a risk and not just sit there and go, you know, yeah, I'm happy to be an advisor. Like that's useless. So that's one thing that I, I heard over and over again is no more advisors, like do something, actually take a risk. The other one is, um, sort of calling out the fact that I think a lot of VCs sort of say they like to take non-consensus bets, right? So like our model is we take non-consensus bets, we bet big on those, we build conviction in those, and um, that's how we generate these sort of asymmetric uh, returns and these return the fund winners that everyone's looking for. Again, that's kind of bullshit because most VC investment is very lemming-like in it's just sort of following on like, oh, this is a trend that someone else wrote about. So I'm going to put uh, money into that company or, you know, we need our own plaid or we need our own unit or we need our own lithic. So you're just sort of filling out like a bingo card with all the squares where you need your own version of an idea that someone else already had. Uh, generative AI is like a perfect example of this, right? Like we're seeing this right now, like generative AI, generative AI, like I have to get in there. Um, that's not non-consensus thinking. Non-consensus thinking is saying to yourself, well, so I only know X amount based on my personal lived experience. I wonder if there are big markets out there that I don't understand uh, that could be massive opportunities that I'm just not seeing, right? And uh, a founder of color I spoke to who uh, made this really, really good point, which was um, everyone likes Squire now, right? Squire is the uh, platform for barbershops that helps them uh, like new sort of independent barbershops get set up. It does all of the payment processing, accounting, bookkeeping. Uh, they actually have like a banking product that's been sort of woven into that now. It's a really, really cool platform. And it's just, it's going crazy. It's been really, really successful. And his point about this was until it's gotten to this point, like if you had gotten pitched uh, 
Squire very early on uh, as a VC. Would you have invested? Like, be honest about that answer. And the answer is probably not. And the answer is because if you're not Black and you don't live in these communities where you can understand the really important role that barbershops play in these communities, you would have no idea, right? I certainly wouldn't. Most people wouldn't. That doesn't mean that the idea doesn't make sense. It just means you don't understand it well enough, right? And so I think a lot of times uh, VCs, particularly like more junior VCs who are trying to source deals and trying to move fast and trying to impress their bosses, they sort of get to this point where they assume they know more about the target market or about the problem that a founder is trying to solve. And particularly for women and people of color, that's a terrible assumption to make because your lived experience is not going to match theirs. And it's very likely that if they pitch you something and you go, I don't get this, the right assumption there is to assume you just don't understand or have enough data to know what the true opportunity is. The right assumption is not, oh, I don't get this because it doesn't make sense because this isn't a big opportunity. We should just ignore it. So I think really leaning into the idea that like non-consensus bets means trusting the lived experiences of other people that may be outside of your own and believing that there might be a big opportunity hiding within that experience. I think that's so important for starting to put more money into things where, again, we're not asking for charity, right? This isn't like, do this because it's the right thing. This is do this because you'll make a ton of money if you do this. And you find these non-consensus, great founders who are willing to kill themselves to bring this idea into existence. There's huge opportunity there, but we're just not trained to think that way. And that's what's perpetuated this problem. And on that note, I've now heard the uh, Haslon as the poster child for embedded finance from a dozen people. So good point on Squire. Yeah. Um, we've covered a whole range of topics today. It's been absolutely fantastic you having you on, Alex. So as we get into kind of the wrap up portion of the interview, you've given plenty of sound words of advice already, but any last advice for individuals who might be interested in fintech and building up a following or kind of a commentary position, um, but might be earlier in their process than you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the thing that's nice about the fintech ecosystem, like I said, is that it's totally welcoming. Uh, 99.999% of people are just super friendly, uh, willing to humor dumb questions. And so I think, you know, the best way to do it is to just jump into it both feet, right? There are communities you can join. Uh, you can subscribe to newsletters. I can tell you for a fact that anytime anyone hits reply on any of my newsletters, I always reply back to them. So if you have a dumb question, if you don't understand something, if you have an observation you'd like to share, if you just want to introduce yourself, if you want to catch up and have coffee over Zoom for five minutes, all of those things are totally game to do. Right? Everyone is willing to do that. And it's not just me. I know all of my peers in the space who also are sort of in positions of influence. They also love getting those introductions and emails and DMs on Twitter and DMs on LinkedIn. So uh, I think the biggest thing is to just jump in and be a very active student of the industry. And you will find lots of uh, people who are willing to mentor you, uh, provide guidance, uh, and, and really just be shoulders that you can stand on, right? We're all standing on the shoulders of someone else, as you said. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a rich tradition of all of this stuff happening in fintech. And we all benefit when the next person climbs up behind us. So I think that's the attitude. And you just have to lean into that. Sound words of advice there. And um... I know you share your takes constantly on Twitter, so this is a tougher question for you than I think for some of our guests, but um, do you have any fintech hot takes you want to share for our listeners? Uh, yeah, my hot take that I rant about on Twitter, but I want to rant about it here is um, don't ever ask for tips in your fintech business model. This is like my least favorite thing. It just bugs me constantly. Um, I, I, 
I haven't figured out a way to turn it into a whole newsletter yet because it feels more like a rant than like good analysis. But like, please don't do this. Your app is not a, um, you know, waitress uh, trying to work her way through school. Like your app doesn't need tips. Consumers don't like to give tips. It's a bad business model. It's bad for you. Regulators hate it. Like don't do tips. That's my, that's my, not so much hot take as a rant. I will say, having grown up in London, the concept of tipping, at least the rate it is in the US, is very foreign to me. It's insane already. It's a, we should do less of it in like restaurants and other places anyway. Like, like let's just destroy tipping as a model everywhere. But at least like no apps should ever ask for tips. That's my that's my take. I appreciate the uh, the clearly passionate hot take there. <laughs> and lastly, we love to ask all our guests this, but um, how do you like to spend your time outside of everything you do in fintech? Yeah, um, I have a almost three-year-old son and an almost five-year-old son at home. Uh, so anyone who has toddlers can uh, empathize with this. Literally every second of my time not spent thinking about fintech is spent uh, chasing them, wrestling them to the ground, uh, trying to coax them into eating something other than mac and cheese, like whatever the task is for that second. And uh, they are absolutely delightful and fill up all of my extra time. So that's uh, for me, that's the big one. Um, if I have any spare time that's not that uh i like to try to go outside being in montana and hike around or spend time in the woods uh chop wood that kind of thing but um most of it's spent with my kids amazing um alex it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast appreciate you following up from twitter but uh would love to have you on again thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it thank you for listening to today's episode of the wharton fintech podcast If you love our show, please write a review or engage with us on social media. We greatly appreciate your support and it helps us spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you'll be able to access interviews, articles, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, a very special thank you to our editor, Rafael Ostria. Until next time, your host, Andrew Jansen's.